You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles this afternoon to the Gospel according to John. We begin at chapter 1, the verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him was nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Then we turn to chapter 10, beginning at verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, Believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And finally, we turn to John 14, beginning at verse 5. John 14, beginning at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, ever after? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who does and is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes it in question and answer 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 6. 
From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Let's also turn to the Belgian Confession, Article 3 and Article 5. Article 3 of the Belgian Confession is entitled, The Word of God. It says there, we confess that this word of God did not come by the impulse of man, but that man moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, as the Apostle Peter says, 2 Peter 1.21. Thereafter, in his special care for us and our salvation, God commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing. And he himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. And also turning to Article 5 on the next page, the authority of Holy Scripture, it's called, We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. We believe without any doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the Church receives and approves them as such, but especially because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God. And also because they contain the evidence thereof in themselves. For even the blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are being fulfilled. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, what is God's greatest gift to us? Of all of the gifts, blessings, benefits, and presents that God has given to us which one is number one. Now, I dare say that's not a hard question to answer if you stop and think for a moment and reflect on all that God has told you and done for you. Then you will soon come to the answer, and the answer is that Jesus Christ is God's greatest and most blessed gift to us. After all, we read in Romans 5, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? In addition, we may think of the Apostle Paul's grateful shout at the end of 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so the scriptures would have us believe and understand that Christ is number one. But something else as well, for of late, Pastor de Jong has been going through this section of the Heidelberg Catechism, and last time he dealt with Lord's Day 6, at least most of it. And you know, this part of the Lord's Days confirms it as well. For they've been asking all sorts of questions about our need as sinners to get reconnected to God, about how we can't do it, about how animals can't do it, about how only a unique mediator can do it. In the end, we need someone absolutely unusual and unheard of from God. We need a mediator who is both God and man, two and one. And who can that be? 
who can meet all of these conditions? Well, of course, there's only one person, namely our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. His very uniqueness makes him an extraordinary and very, very special gift. But then, beloved, if Christ is God's first and foremost gift to us, here's another question. What is God's second greatest gift to us? I dare say that's a bit of a tougher question. Our minds are good at identifying first things and last things, but we often have trouble with the stuff in between. So if Christ is number one, what is number two? Well, I think that the answer is to be found here in number 19 of the Catechism. It's the Holy Gospel. A good argument can be made for saying that the Gospel is God's second greatest gift. For Think about it for a moment. Imagine if we didn't have the Gospel. If we... If we didn't have the Bible, or the Holy Scriptures, or the Word of God, or whatever else it's called, you know, then in a way we would be like the Greeks and the Romans of old, always speculating, always stabbing in the dark, always wondering whether or not we got it right, always inventing more gods, or else we'd be like so many, many people today. Always walking around in confusion, elevating their own insights, grasping at desperate straws, and kissing up to the latest fads and ideas. You see how thankful we should be that God has not kept us guessing and in the dark. We may know Him. We may know His will, His plan. Of course, that doesn't mean that we know everything. But we know enough. We know enough about Him. We know enough to be saved. We know enough about all the big and the basic questions of life and death. And so for these reasons and many more that you can probably think of, you can say the gospel is God's second greatest gift to His people. And as such, it's a gift that merits some further exploration. And so I preach to you on the following theme, God's second greatest gift, who gives it to us, who applies it in us, who fulfills it for us. Well, beloved, when we examine the Holy Gospel, we need to begin with God, specifically with God the Father. And why? Because we are told that He is its ultimate source. If you turn, for example, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the verses 16 and 17, and look what it says there. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, in order that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And read as well the previous verse, verse 15, where it says, You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so taken together, we're being told here that in order to be wise in matters of salvation, as well as to be properly equipped for a life of service and discipleship, we need the scriptures. We need the gospel. But why do we need them? What's so special about them? Well, Paul says it's the fact that they are God-breathed or inspired by God. You know, the word that the Apostle Paul uses is a Greek compound word made up of the word theos for God and pneuma for breath. And that's how we have the New International Version rendering God-breathed. And then a number of points need to be made in connection with this. The first is that the Greek word has often been incorrectly translated as inspired. As if God was somehow responsible for breathing into the Bible. You know, here you have this book that men have written down throughout the centuries, 15 centuries about. And now what does God do? He comes along and he breathes some special kind of life or magic into it. Wrong. It's not a a case of man first doing the writing and then God doing the puffing. But rather what we need to realize is that this Greek word should be translated as breathed out. In the sense that scripture is breathed out by God. It's not so that God breathes into the word. Instead it is so that God breathes out this word. He is its source. In other words, its origin. It comes from him in the first place. It's like the breath of his mouth. Holy scripture, the gospel, represents the very breath of God himself. Now some have said in this connection that the gospel is not so much the word of God, but that it only becomes the word of God when we people experience it. And you read it, you know, and and if it moves you, if it inspires you, if it enlightens you, elevates you, then it becomes the real word. Interesting, but false. For what we need to understand is that this gospel doesn't need our emotional human response to validate itself. It is always in and of itself the gospel. How we react or do not react to it doesn't change its character. And another thing to note from 2 Timothy 3.16 is that this God-breathed-out quality of the gospel applies to, to all of it. Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. Every single part of it comes to us in this way. And of course, in saying this, the apostle is not alleging that all of Scripture is equally stimulating or equally instructive. Some Bible books speak more to us than others. Some biblical passages are easier to understand and apply than others. There's a great variety in the Word of God. 
And yet Paul insists that all of it, Old Testament as well as New Testament, is all breathed out by God. You're not allowed to pick and choose from it. You're not allowed to pit one part against another. You're not allowed to obey some parts and ignore others. It's all God-breathed. And now, if it's all God-breathed, that has other implications as well. For one, it implies that the liberal or the modernist way of interpreting the gospel or of handling it is wrong. And this view sees the Bible as essentially a human book. It would have us believe that it is the product of the creative genius of the religious community in the past and insists that much of it belongs to myth and legend. And it teaches us that what we have in this gospel is all kinds of different human experiences. And at the same time, do not be surprised when these experiences contradict one another. And then do not be unnerved either by its older, outmoded theology. That's the kind of approach. But yet, beloved, the scriptures... Do not support such an approach. It's something imposed on the Word instead of coming from the Word. Instead of man bowing before this Word, man becomes the arbiter of the Word. He puts himself above it instead of beneath it. And the same applies, but then perhaps in a lesser scale when it comes to what some have called the neo-evangelical view of Scripture. And it's called by this name because it depends and defends the view of partial inspiration. It comes out and it says things like, we have a great and we have a high regard for the Holy Gospel, only we do not believe that it should be treated as if it were inspired, infallible, or inerrant. It's inspired that, that that inspiration is only limited to certain parts and sections. And the result of the, such an approach is that all those parts deemed to be disagreeable, old-fashioned, or in dispute are thrown out. You pick and you choose your way to the Bible. And unfortunately, many people do just such a thing these days. They don't like to hear what Paul says and what Paul writes about the role of women in the church. So they say, well, that's all cultural, that's all time-bound. And they don't like either what Genesis says about the origin of all things. So they write them off as mythological and unhistorical. They don't agree with what the scripture says about homosexuality, so they ignore the pertinent passages or try to explain them away. And another trick in this connection that's often employed is to assert that the Bible is only inspired when it comes to matters of doctrine. But not when it comes to history, geography, or anything else. In short, beloved, we are into an era of ever-increasing selectivity 
Some who at one time stood four square for the inspiration and infallibility of the word are not immune from this approach. But yet, beloved, for us this afternoon, the crucial question is, does God, the Father, want us to treat his word in this kind of a way? Does he appreciate that? The answer can only be allowed, no. Jesus Christ says in John 10, you may have noted it, the scripture cannot be broken. Verse 35. It's, it's kind of an aside comment, but it's a very important and fundamental comment. The scripture cannot be broken. And also, it's not for nothing that the last book of the Bible, chapter 22, Revelation, says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which is described in this book. Now, I know what some people say. I know, for example, what the Mormons would say, because they add the Book of Mormon and consider it to be on par with the Bible. They say, oh, that applies only to the last book of the Bible, only to the book of Revelation. But then they haven't read the rest of the scriptures. They haven't read, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 12 where you see exactly the same kind of warning being applied to the Old Testament scriptures of God. So, beloved, what this is saying is handle the word with care. Handle both the Old Testament and the New Testament with care. It's the gospel of God. It's the property of the Father. He owns it. He shares it, but he also defends it. But then, beloved, if that is the first thing that we need to understand with respect to this whole matter, that the Father is the one who gives us the gospel. There's also something else mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 1, the verses 20 and 21, where it reads, above all this, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying there is that the prophets of old were not simply expressing their own ideas or opinions or theories. It's not so that one day they decided to get on their prophetic soapboxes and tell the people, I have something to say to you. Now what we need to understand about these men who wrote the gospel are two things. The first is they spoke from God. They were appointed by God And they became spokesmen for God. 
And in that connection, one is reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. The Lord came to him and told him that he had been appointed as a prophet to the nations. And what was his reaction? Ah, sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. That's what Moses had said years before. I don't know how to talk. To which God replied, you must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. And we're even told that God touched his mouth and said to him, I have put my words in your mouth. You see, these men, they spoke from God. In the second place, these words of Peter mention not only that the prophets of old spoke from God, but also that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were not in the driver's seat when it came to these particular words that they spoke. No, it was God, the Holy Spirit, who's in the driver's seat. He's the one who carries them, or better, ferries them along. He's the one who motivates, guides, directs, enlightens, and supervises the whole process. Obviously, God the Father uses the Holy Spirit in this matter of his revelation. But then, beloved, the Spirit does more than just supervise the process of revelation. He also applies it to the hearts of the children of God. You know, in that connection, one of our creeds, and we read the Belgian Confession, is worthy of consulting. It's Article 5, where it says, We believe without any doubt all things contained in them, that is, in the books of the Holy Scripture, not so much because the church receives and approves them, as such. Now, the confession doesn't want to deny that the church plays a key role in receiving the scriptures and approving them. After all, it was the church that received the scriptures from God. It received the books of the Old Testament, and later on, it received all the books of the New Testament. And finally, it placed its stamp of approval upon all of these books. The apostles and the church councils of the early church established the canon. So it is that we receive them. Yet we receive them for another reason as well. We receive them, the confession rightly says, because they contain the evidence that they are from God in themselves. How do we know that these books of the gospel come from God. We know it because of the church, you can say, and we know it because of what is in them. Read them. And you come across a marvelous unity, an unsurpassed grandeur, a majestic ethic, a dazzling depth of thought, and an inexhaustible treasure. You know, sometimes as you go out in life, you meet people who are critical and cynical about the Bible. 
And some people refer to it as that book. But you know, so often, those are only second-hand criticisms. And what I mean by that is that these people have never, ever read the Bible for themselves. They may have read Plato, they may have read Shakespeare, but they have never read the Scriptures. And what they need to do, therefore, in all fairness, is to read it. They need to interact with the evidence in it. And they need to do that on a personal, direct, and first-hand basis. Will it convince them? Is it so that either the church convinces them or the evidence in these books convinces them? Not really. What ultimately does it, says our confession correctly, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they're from God. You see, it's the Spirit and only the Spirit who can melt our hearts of stone or soften them. It's only the Spirit who can change our wills. It's only the Spirit who can enlighten our darkened and superstitious minds. What the church cannot do, what the evidence will not do, the Spirit can. And the Spirit does do. He convinces people that this really is the gospel. The good news of God, from God, about God. He causes the scales of superstition, skepticism, and unbelief to fall from their eyes. And he enables them to believe that the catechisms boast about Jesus Christ as the only mediator is really, actually, True. Yes, and that, beloved, does bring us to the role of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in all of this. And, of course, one could say that what is special about our Lord Jesus Christ is found in the way in which he teaches this particular word. Never before... As the people who heard him soon concluded, has anyone ever spoken like this? Never before has anyone had such words, such truths, such insights, such parables, such perception and such knowledge. Truly Christ Jesus is the greatest teacher of them all. And I don't care who else you read. And indeed, I would even challenge you to read as broadly as you can. And in the end, what will become clear to you, and what has become clear to many, is that no one else's words match his words. Not Socrates, not Confucius, not Milton, not Mohammed, not Voltaire, not anyone is able to teach 
as he can. He's unsurpassable. He's in a league all his own. But still, beloved, in spite of the fact that Christ Jesus is this phenomenal teacher, what makes him really special is not what he does with the Word, but the fact that he is the Word incarnate. That's why we read John 1. In the beginning is the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word is God. And you find the same thing in John chapter 5, which we also read, where Christ says to the Pharisees, you you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What's that all about? Well, it's about the scribes and the Pharisees and their approach to the gospel. They assumed that busyness with the word, with the gospel, automatically equates to the gift of eternal life. You know, read the word enough, study the word enough, memorize the word enough, debate the word enough... And all of that, they said, is a recipe for eternity. Were they right? If they were right, then salvation at bottom is nothing more than a do-it-yourself business. But notice the Lord Jesus comes along and he says they're utterly, totally wrong. He says they've completely missed the boat. On this one. They can't see the forest for the trees. They can't see the barn, even though the barn door is right in front of them. They're blind. And they're wrong. And how so? They're both, he says, because there is no life in this word or this gospel as such. No matter how many hours of reading it, no matter how many verses you memorize, no matter how many chapters you discuss, in other words, no matter how many when or women's societies or young people's societies or Bible study club hours that you spend, that doesn't win you eternal life. There's only one thing that does that. And that is coming To Christ. You need to come to him in faith. And why? Because he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He's the word become flesh. Everywhere they point to him and are about him. To refer to the catechism, paradise, patriarchs, prophets, sacrifices, ceremonies, they all point to Christ. As surely as all of the roads in the Roman Empire lead to Rome, so all of the roads in Scripture lead to Christ. Yes, and only in Christ 
is their life. Glorious, everlasting, astounding life. And so is the conclusion of the catechism supported and proven? Is Jesus Christ the only unique, perfect, and complete mediator of his people? Indeed, he is. And it can be supported by what the gospel says in its entirety about him. And so where does that now leave you and I? Surely it leads us to the need to be into the gospel frequently. But beloved, we, we turn to the gospel, not simply to put in religious or sanctified hours, we we turn to the gospel in order that we might see Jesus. We turn to it so that the Spirit of Christ may more and more work in us. We turn to it so that we may receive more light as we travel the road that leads to everlasting life and glory. So, beloved, how busy are you with God's second best gift? Why do you read it? How often do you read it? How much do you study it? How diligently do you meditate upon it? How faithfully do you live your life according to it? Do you have a reading plan? In many study Bibles, you can now find plans or schedules that allow you to read the Bible in a whole year. And that's a practice that can be recommended to you as a worthwhile pursuit. And in addition, I would also urge those of you who are computer savvy to think about buying and using a Bible computer program. One of the best ones in all the world is made just south of us in Bellingham. It's called Logos Bible Software. It allows you to explore and study the Bible, the gospel as never before. And also I would say to you, do not overlook the use of a good Bible devotional. One of my family's favorites throughout the years has been Andrew Kivenhoven's Daylight. And I also saw the other day that Reverend Stam has recently written one called En Route. I'm not sure whether he asked Air Canada for permission to use that name, but as the name indicates, it's meant to help you as you travel down the road of life. And so, beloved, there are all of these helps, there are all of these guides out there. Never before in history have we had so many resources when it comes to the study of God's second greatest gift. But yet realize well, the aim of all this reading and all this knowledge and all this application of the second gift is to bring us ultimately into communion with God's greatest gift. Jesus Christ, our great Glorious, wonderful Savior, Mediator, and Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. 
For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.